Hello everybody, this is Julian Charles of TheMindRenewed.com coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. Today is the 27th of January 2015 and I am very privileged to be able to welcome to the programme Dr. Daniela Ganza, who is author of the seminal book NATO's Secret Armies, Operation Gladio and Terrorism in Western Europe. Now, Dr. Ganser is a Swiss historian specialising in contemporary history since 1945 and international politics, whose research centres in peace studies, geostrategy, covert warfare, resource wars and economic policy. He teaches at the University of St. Gallen and the University of Basel and is also founder and director of the Swiss Institute for Peace and Energy Research, which is also in Basel. Dr. Ganser, thank you very much indeed for joining us on The Mind Renewed. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to be speaking to you at long last. Um, I've given really very cryptic information <laughs> about you in my little opening remark there. So I'm just wondering if you could just give us a fuller impression of the work that you do. Um, yes, I mean, the information that you provided is correct. Um, I'm, I'm here in Switzerland. I'm 42 years old. I have two kids. And uh, what I do is I, I research uh, secret warfare. Um, I look at resource wars, I look at special operation forces, I look at the secret services, and I'm interested in, in peace uh, research, I'm interested in human rights. So, um, you know, an, an activist academic, as you call them, you know, academics with a clear feeling that it's not right, that we are stuck in the spiral of, of violence, that we actually are. Yeah. And of course, we're going to be discussing the specific issue of Operation Gladio, as it's normally called. Obviously, we're going to be centering in your research that led up to your book, NATO Secret Armies. Now, I understand that your book really was based on your PhD studies. So what prompted you to get interested in this subject in the first place? I uh, did my studies here in Switzerland and um, my first book that was before the PhD we had to do a master thesis every student of history in here in Switzerland and I guess it's the same all over the world has to search for a topic for his master thesis and, and what I did at that time was I, I looked at the Cuban Missile Crisis and I looked at the CIA and the Bay of Pigs invasion so that was in the 1960s when the Americans tried to overthrow Fidel Castro and that was really fascinating because uh, during my time in Swiss high schools, we never learned anything of secret warfare. You know, our history teachers never told us anything. And then I went through my uh, university degrees and I never heard anything about secret warfare. And then just at the end of my studies, doing my master, I learned about secret warfare, you know, that secret services exist, that at United Nations in the Security Council, governments lie to each other and how it all works. And yeah. um I was baffled. I was 25 years old then, and <laughs> I thought, this is interesting. I want to know more. Yeah. Well, it is interesting because we're sort of brought up to have faith in our governments. I don't think you can kind of understand that, but along with that goes this kind of assumption that, well, they would never lie to us. That's right. You know, I mean, it's really funny. In, in April 1961, um, the CIA was doing the invasion of Cuba, and it was obviously a secret operation. It was the Bay of Pigs invasion, and the aim of the CIA was to, to topple uh, the government of Fidel Castro. That was part of my historic research, I looked at the documents of the United Nations Security Council. And the funny thing is, obviously, you have the, the, the standing members, France and, and England and the US and, and Russia and China. These are the five standing members in the UN Security Council. And you have the Cuban representative who comes in and says, we're just being attacked by the CIA. And, you know, they're trying to overthrow the government. <laughs> and then you look in the official transcripts and the American ambassador says, this is all nonsense. Um, this is uh, probably some 
fake information. And then you, the Cuban representative goes on and says, no, no, we are being bombed right now. It's not fake. And then the American ambassador says, oh, yeah, true indeed, you're being bombed. But that probably, um, as I've heard now through my channels, are people from the Cuban Air Force, pilots, who are so dissatisfied with this dictatorship of your Fidel Castro that before leaving Cuba, they uh, decided to drop some bombs on the country they wanted to leave. (laughs) It is hilarious, but that's actually in the records. And the funny thing is, then the British and the French ambassador in the UN say, oh, you know, if my colleague from the US said this, then that's probably true, and we believe him totally and completely. (laughs) And and the Chinese and the Soviets go completely mad and say, oh, it's all nonsense. And so, you know, that, that was basically how I came to be interested into secret warfare. And that led, of course, to this research into Gladio itself. Now, how easy did you actually find that to research? Did you find that uh, governments were open in revealing their information? You know, it was really my interest which which guided my steps. I, I, I tried to first establish whether it's a fact that NATO had secret armies, and I, I went back to the records and I, I looked at the resolution of the European Parliament, and I have it right here right now. It's from 22 November 1990, and it says... The European Union Parliament protests vigorously at the assumption by a certain U.S. military personnel at SHAPE, SHAPE is the Supreme Headquarters Allied Power Europe, and the NATO of the right to encourage the establishment in Europe of a clandestine intelligence and operations network. Uh, and, and so I said, okay, there's a secret network in Europe and the European Union protests, you know, against NATO and NATO doesn't want to reply. So it was, you know, it was a fight between the big guys, the European Union being a big guy and NATO being a big guy. And somewhere there, there was a quarrel. So I thought, yeah, this is really interesting. And then I, I went further into the details and I found out that uh, the Italian prime minister, Giulio Andreotti, had confirmed that a secret army existed in Italy. And it was very funny because at the time the French, the French president uh, was uh, François Mitterrand, uh, he said, no, no, we didn't have a secret army. And uh, then the Italian prime minister, Giulio Andreotti, said, Oh, yes, uh, very much so. I mean, there was a meeting in, in, in 1990, and also the French attended that meeting. <laughs> and so Paris was really, you know, um, embarrassed because then they had to confirm that, you know, what they had said the previous day uh, was actually wrong and that, in fact, they had a stay behind the army. And so it was a scandal which was out of control. Yeah. You know, if a country tried to comment, and, and by commenting in one direction, they were corrected by another country. And so in the end, I had enough data which absolutely solidly and beyond any doubt confirmed that NATO had a secret army. And in Italy, it was called Gladio. In other countries, it was called Stay Behind. But I can imagine that must have been really difficult for you to pick through all the claims and the counterclaims and the propaganda and actually decide what's the truth in this. Anyway, um, what I want to ask you to do first, really, is to kind of set out what Gladio is, because I quite suspect that many people will know what it is or what it was, but there will be some people who've never heard about it before, I'm quite sure. So perhaps it'd be a good idea just to state basically what it was. Could you give us an idea? Yes, sure. Gladio is actually the word for a short sword. So the gladiators in, in ancient Rome used that double-edged sword. It's actually the name for a weapon, gladio. And in Italy, during the Cold War, you had an Italian military secret service called the Servizio Informazioni Sicurezza Militare. So that's just the military secret service. And this secret service had 
a branch, so it's part of the, the Italian secret service, uh, which was called Gladio. So it's a top secret part of the Italian secret service, which was preparing to fight for two things. And that's where it becomes really delicate. One, in case of a Soviet invasion of Western Europe, so an invasion of Italy, of France, of Germany, of Denmark, etc., of Norway, Switzerland, this secret network of soldiers would have fought as a guerrilla army in the sense, you know, that they, they fight behind enemy lines. They would have their arms caches with explosives, with weapons, with ammunition, and also with communication gear. So, you know, in the case that you had NATO pilots shot down above Soviet-occupied France, you would have the NATO secret army guerrillas uh, giving information to governments abroad, probably in UK or in US, unoccupied territory about the shot down pallets. So, you know, it was very much along this idea of resistance. That was one branch. So was it, it was actually inspired by the resistance movements in World War II, was it? That's true, very much so. In fact, I've had a, a few people in Norway who, who said, you know, we don't want to be called um, gladiators and we don't want to be called uh, secret soldiers because um, that all has this touch of that we were somehow linked to acts of terrorism that tried to destabilize the European democracies. In, in fact, we did the opposite. We were occupied by the Germans during World War Two. And when World War II was over in 1945, our aim was to prepare for a new war, uh, and that would have been the war against the Soviet Union. And in order to be really ready for that war, we did not only have a regular army, so the, you know, the soldiers that are controlled by the defense department, but we also had a second, like a, a secret group, which would fight even uh, when the normal army would have declared defeat. So we were resistance fighters and we were doing this very honorable job. And, you know, I believe that part of the NATO secret army covered people who were in no way extremists, but who just wanted to defend their country in case it would have been occupied. And so we can't lump them all together. And uh, it, it's important to keep these two things apart. Absolutely. So how many countries were actually involved in having these stay-behind armies? Oh, many, many, many countries. Um, you know, the scandal broke in Italy, um, you know, and first it was believed that it's just uh, another Italian mess, uh, so to speak, because there's always a scandal in Italy, isn't there? And, right. uh, but then, you know, it went further. The, the defense minister from Belgium at the time was in Italy. And, uh, you know, he read in the paper that also Belgium had a secret army. And he thought gee, that's interesting. I'm the defense minister and I've never heard of it. And so uh, he flew back to Belgium and, and he called his uh, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, so the highest officer of the Belgian military, and he asked him, is it true what the Italian newspaper writes, that we have a secret army also in Belgium? And then the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff in Belgium said, yeah, that's true. <laughs> and then the defense minister said, wait, that's a bit strange. Why don't I do I know nothing about it. I'm the defense minister. And then the military officer said, you know, we are military officers and we dedicate basically our entire career, our whole life to military affairs. And you're just a defense minister so and a socialist further on, you know, so governments come and go and we're not going to tell every defense minister about the more secret operations that we have ongoing. And, you know, it went on that the Belgian parliament then made an investigation and in Belgium you had the same structure 
it was also part of the secret service and within the secret service you had the, the secret army and it was not only Italy and Belgium it was also in Switzerland that we had a secret army it was also in Germany that you had a secret stay behind army you had one in the Netherlands, you had one in Denmark, another one in Norway, then also in Spain and in Portugal, furthermore in Greece and in Turkey. And um, you also have one in Finland, neutral Finland, was not part of NATO at the time and still isn't today, also in Austria, another neutral country, and in Sweden. So basically what you can say is that all of Western Europe was covered with a network of NATO stay-behind armies which were designed to become operative in the case of a Soviet invasion. Obviously, now we know today that the Soviet invasion never came. But at the time when these networks were set up, so in the, in, in the late 40s and the early 50s, uh, people weren't so sure. Yeah. And you say that certain politicians, certain ministers were given information that these stay-behind armies existed, but many of them weren't. How was that decision made? I think the fear of NATO, uh, the fear of Washington, and also the fear of London was that if you give this information to a socialist minister or even a communist minister, a minister of the interior, a minister of defense, prime minister, whatever, then, you know, the secret might be passed on to Moscow. So to speak, NATO did not trust all European governments to handle this secret in the sense that, you know, you could you could actually tell Parliament or that you can mm. tell the press. Because strictly speaking, in a democracy, you can't have a secret army, okay? It's totally wow. legal. You can't. <laughs> you can have a police force, you can have a secret service, and you can have an army. These are the three forces that are designed to guarantee security. But Parliament, which represents the population, must know who is in the defense forces, who is in the secret service. The parliamentarians must be able to know every name of every police officer carrying a weapon. And it's impossible that parliament does not know about an entire network of secret armies. Uh, but in fact, that was the case. So we actually have here a failure of democratic control. And um, I looked at it specifically here in Switzerland. The reason was that they didn't tell parliamentarians because they thought, well, parliamentarians can't keep a secret. And, you know, that's probably true. But it still is a problem because you can't say we're doing here a secret operation. In Switzerland also, it was the Untergruppe Nachrichtendienst und Abwehr. So, you know, it was a, the Swiss military defense, which cooperated very closely with the British MI6. And they trained together these secret networks. And we had some members of the executive branch who knew about it, but the public at large had never heard of it. So, you know, many of your listeners probably have never heard of it. And I remember when I was doing the PhD, I talked to my um, professors at the London School of Economics and Political Science. I studied a few years in London. And these guys, you know, they were trained in international politics and had written books and knew a lot about it. And I asked him, do you know anything about NATO secret armies? And they said, uh, wait a moment, wait a moment. Yes, there was something. But what was it exactly? So, <laughs> you know, imagine that you ask, but do you know anything about the Vietnam War? <laughs> and they go like, 
wait a moment, Vietnam War? I've, I've never heard of it. What was that? Where's Vietnam? And, you know, that's a, we're talking about that level of information gap. Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? And you've mentioned MI6 there. So one thing I wanted to ask you about the setup of this um, Stay Behind Armies. Is it right that right from the beginning, it was a kind of Anglo-American setup? Yes. Yeah, the British Special Operations Executive and the what was the uh, the forerunner to the CIA, the Office of Strategic Services, they were hand in hand together organizing this. Is that right? That is correct. Because if you turn back um, to the time of the Second World War between 1939 and 1945, um, the Special Operations Executive, so the British branch, was operating um, behind enemy lines. They were trying to fight the Germans uh, with unorthodox warfare, etc. And uh, the Office of uh, Strategic Services, the OSS, uh, the American branch of secret warfare during World War II was, was pretty much doing the same thing. And um, they um, were, for instance, in Italy, cooperating with the, with the communists because they wanted the communists to get stronger so they could defeat Mussolini. Uh, Mussolini, obviously, being the, the dictator of Italy during World War II. And as the war came to an end, um, the OSS realized that if they continue to give support to the Italian communist resistance, then um, you would have Italian communists in power at the end of the Second World War. Because once Mussolini was dead, you know, you, you actually have the resistance network of the communists and then Italy would go communist. So they didn't want that at all. So they had to do two things. First, they stopped cooperating with this resistant network because it was communist. So SOE and OSS stopped sending weapons to these networks. And secondly, the CIA. The first thing, you know, that the CIA did in all of its history, today we're talking about CIA torture and other issues, but people forget that the first operation that the CIA did was to rig the Italian elections of 1948. The job was make sure that no communists gain a dominant position in the Italian parliament because otherwise we can't insert Italy in 49 into NATO. So you had the vote first and then uh, the vote had to be rigged, had to be manipulated. It worked, actually worked. And uh, in 49, uh, Italy was inserted into NATO. But CIA and MI6 made sure that through this network of stay-behind soldiers, they always had um, sort of a, a secret control of all NATO countries. And it was this sort of anti-communist impetus that was a, a large force behind the kind of morphing of this organisation into something much more sinister in nature, with substantial links to terrorism in some cases so i wonder if you could tell us what happened there why that shift took place what, what that shift was um yes that is the very very difficult part of my research because you have to keep in mind that this stay behind network was not discovered by accident it was discovered because an italian magistrate so you know that's a judge he investigated a terrorist attack uh, that had happened in 1972 in a small Italian village, northern Italy, in Peteano. That was an attack where, you know, there was a car abandoned in that village and then there was a phone call to the police which said, you know, we don't know what car this is, come over, check it out. And then the Italian police went there and opened, you know, the door of the car and the car exploded and three police officers were killed. And right after that, you had a phone call which said, we are the Red Brigades, which was an Italian terrorist group of the extreme left, and we are responsible for this terrorist attack. We did it, 
And then you had a police officer, uh, an expert in, in explosives, who in the investigation said, I looked at the explosive, and the explosive very clearly is the one used by the Red Brigades. Okay, so this story stood for a long time. And then suddenly an Italian judge, Felice Casson, looked at the attack again and he found that it was all wrong, that it was all false, that it was all manipulated, that it was a sea of lies. And he found out that, in fact, this terrorist attack had been carried out not by the extreme left, but by the extreme right. And he found out that Vincenzo Vinciguerra was the terrorist who had carried out this attack. So he got hand of the man. He was an extreme uh, right-wing member of Ordine Nuovo, which is some neo-fascist group in Italy. And uh, Vinciguerra said, yes, I carried out this terrorist attack. That's true indeed. But, you know, I'm being protected. I'm being protected by a network of secret services and, furthermore, there's a secret network all over Europe coordinated by NATO. So he said that, you know, remember, that was 1980s and many people in Italy thought this man is just mad. Okay, there's no secret NATO army and nothing of the kind. And it's impossible and, and whatever. But then this Italian judge um, was really, you know, uh, determined to find out the truth. And he pressured Italian Prime Minister Giulio Andreotti to give him access to the Italian military secret services archive and strangely enough and i can't explain that really i must admit strangely enough he got access to the archives of the italian military secret service i mean imagine that if i you know as a historian got access to the archives of the cia or the mi6 or or the mossad or the italian secret service i mean you know obviously we, we we would find interesting things as well but you know this italian judge then gets access to the archives And there, only there, he finds the documents which state very clearly that Operation Gladio was designed to fight two enemies. First, a Soviet invasion. That never happened. And secondly, a domestic enemy. And the idea to fight this domestic enemy was that you carry out a terrorist attack. You know, usually terrorist attacks shock everybody. And then everybody's fearful. Second, what you do is you blame your enemy. So you say the, the, the communists during the Cold War, or today you would say the Muslims. And then they are totally discredited, even if they didn't do the terrorist attack. That is called false flag strategy of tension. And this Italian judge, Felice Casson, found out that the strategy of tension was actually used to shock Italy into, you know, a very strong fear of communist terrorism. So it really, it was fabricated. And then today we, we try to put together the pieces and, and NATO doesn't want to commend and the CIA doesn't want to commend and the MI6 doesn't want to commend. And it's a bit tricky. But what we know today is that these terrorist attacks were carried out and many of them were false flag strategy of tension. So, you know, we, we were being lied to. Mm-hmm. So... In this case, you have a right-winger, an extreme right-winger, Vinciguerra, who is a member of this group, Nuovo Ordine, and he's carrying out this. And you say that is a false flag attack. That's one strategy. But wasn't there also another strategy of actually infiltrating left-wing groups and getting them to commit acts of terror? That's true. That's another idea, to just infiltrate a left-wing group when you think it's not sufficiently violent and then push them and push them 
further to actually carry out something violent, to kill somebody. Because then if you have a, a so-called domestic emergency, then you can actually say, we need more money for the military. We need more money for NATO. We need more power for the Secret Service to, you know, guarantee your freedom, to guarantee your liberties. And, and you know, we have here clear proof that actually these, these communists are, are evil, that they're dreadful. And you then had an Italian Senate investigation. So the Senate is the Italian parliament, one branch of it. And they, in the year 2000, they looked at this terrorism that they had in Italy and they came out with a report where they concluded, and, and, and let me quote just this sentence, they say, and that's the Italian parliament, those massacres, those bombs, those military actions had been organized or promoted or supported by men inside Italian state institutions, and as has been discovered more recently, by men linked to the structures of United States intelligence. Full stop. End of quote. So that is a very, very sensible quote. People maybe don't realize it, but what it means is you have terrorism in Italy that is, you know, undisputed in the Cold War. You have Bologna, you have uh, Piazza Fontana, you have Peteano, you, have, you know, Strage. It's called Strage in Italy, terrorist attacks. So that's, you know, a well-established fact. Now, the Italian Senate already 15 years ago said that their men inside Italian state institutions, which means inside the Italian defense ministry and there inside the military intelligence unit. So, you know, um, people from the secret services were linked to these terrorist attacks. And furthermore, you had men from the American secret services, from the CIA or for the maybe defense intelligence agency, a DIA, who were also linked to these acts of terrorism. And that, you know, if you look at that, that makes it very, very sad because uh, we all have to pay taxes, and that's, that's hard enough, isn't it? But when we hear that our taxes go to the defense department and there go to the secret service who then attacks us with terrorism, then you basically pay for your own terrorist attack. And, and you know, that makes it impossible. You, people go like, people with whom I've discussed this, they go into a state of disbelief. They say, oh, no, that, that's impossible, is it? And then I say, no, I mean, it is possible. Look at the data. I have, have, have one other quote, if, if you allow. Can, can I give you one other quote? Please do, yes. Vincenzo Vinciguerra, he was this terrorist who had carried out the Peteano um, terrorist attack of 1972 that I spoke of a minute ago. And he gave this explanation. You know, he's now one who carried out terrorism in Europe and, and was found guilty and confessed. And he, he now explains why he did it. And he said this. You had to attack civilians, the people, women, children, innocent people, unknown people, far removed from any political game. So basically, you just kill anybody in a railway station. The reason was quite simple. This is the quote of Vincenzo Vinciguerra. They were supposed to force these people, the Italian public, to turn to the state to ask for greater security. This is the political logic that lies behind all the massacres and the bombings which remain unpunished because the state cannot convict itself or declare itself responsible for what happened. End of quote. So we have here is basically a terrorist who says, I was protected by the state because the state wanted these terrorist acts to happen 
Because after that, the state could argue we need more power, you know, we need a surveillance technology, we basically need more money, or we need, you know, the many things you can actually ask once you have a terrorist attack, which you couldn't ask before. You know, you can ask people to stay at home after 8 o'clock, and if you ask this on a sunny day and there's no terrorism nowhere, people go, of course I'm not going to stay at home, it's sunny and it's Sunday, and I'm going, of course I'm going to go out, I'm going to go clubbing. But if there's a terrorist attack and the next day you say everybody has to stay home after after eight o'clock, everybody goes, oh, yeah, sure. And this is the shift of power. And, and what people don't understand is that terrorism can be used to actually steer people in certain directions. But the question inevitably comes up to what extent this is organized by NATO or is even owned by NATO. I mean, to what extent is this really a NATO organization? I mean, you've talked about these connections that are there and the allegations made by Vinci Guerra, but how much of that can be substantiated? One thing is solid. We know that these secret state behind armies were coordinated by NATO. That is for sure, because we have members, Italian generals, who directed the secret armies and who say, yes, very clearly, NATO had two branches which secretly coordinated these uh, networks, and that was the Allied Clandestine Committee and the Clandestine Planning Committee. So these are substructures within NATO, and people don't understand that NATO is not a transparent organization. They think they can call NATO every day and ask about Gladio, and, you know, the press officer would give them the information. That's not the case. NATO is a military organization and it guards its secrets very well. I have another point. In, on November 5, 1990, NATO spokesman uh, told an inquisitive press, and here's another quote, NATO has never contemplated guerrilla war or clandestine operations, end of quote. So in 1919, when the scandal broke, NATO said first, no, no, we, we, you know, we have no link to Operation Gladio. But then the next day, NATO officials admitted that the previous day's denial had been false, adding that the alliance would not comment on matters of military secrecy. So basically what NATO does is that they say, oh, no, it doesn't exist. Stay behind. No, nothing. And then, you know, you have enough other countries which say, okay, it does exist. And then NATO says, oh, yes, but we can't comment. It's top secret. And actually, the CIA and the MI6 uh, did the exact same thing. They said it doesn't exist. And when it was confirmed that it exists, they said, okay, we can't comment. And then when we tried, I mean, the we, that is just a network of researchers who, who study secret warfare, when we said, but aren't you linked to terrorism? Then they say, that's what NATO, CIA and MI6 say. Then they say, no, we have nothing to do with terrorism. If indeed somebody from the stay behind network was linked to terrorism, then this guy was a runaway agent. That was just somebody who, who's probably an alcohol problem or or a sexual problem or a moral problem yeah. or, or altogether. And uh, we, we, we're not controlling this guy. Right. So these are rogue individuals. And I suppose, could they also kind of hide behind a technicality? So you could say, well, there's proper NATO and there's kind of hidden NATO and that's sort of functioning parallel to this. So NATO proper has nothing to do with this and hidden NATO. Well, we're not commenting. That's it. It's a, actually a good phrase. NATO proper has nothing to do with terrorism and hidden NATO might be involved in terrorism. But if you think about it, I mean, it is insane. If you look at the world today, um, obviously uh, NATO today is saying we're fighting terrorism. And as a historian, I'm, I'm looking at NATO's history from 1949 onward to this very day. 
And I have to say, um, it's not very clear. It looks as if NATO itself was linked to terrorism, and they don't want to talk about it. So the question remains, is NATO still today linked to acts of terrorism? Do we have data to substantiate this? What are the facts? Because one other story which, which I want to share with you about a terrorist attack in France. Do we have time for this? Can I share this with you? I actually wanted to ask you about that at the end, but please do tell me now, yes. We had this in, in 1985, we had a terrorist attack, which, which the French carried out. I have to briefly recap this for the listeners. Um, the French were carrying out atomic tests in the Pacific at the time. So that was, you know, atomic bombs that wanted to test them. And they said, we test them in the Pacific. Nobody lives there anywhere. Uh, and then there is uh, Greenpeace. This is an, an environmental NGO group. And they had a ship uh, which was called the um, Rainbow Warrior. And they took this ship and, you know, brought the ship right there where the French uh, defense ministry wanted to explode the atomic bombs. So Paris was not amused. And they said, these Greenpeace guys are really stupid. They, you know, they stop us from, from testing our weapons. They, they, they should get out of the way. Obviously, Greenpeace refused and had their ship there and said, stop all nuclear tests and whatever. And then the French said, somebody has to take care of this. And what they did is they sent a group of secret uh, agents, so the French military secret service, uh, DGSC, Direction Générale Sécurité Extérieure. So that's, the, again, you know, within the defense ministry, you have a secret service, and this secret service can carry out COVID action operations. Um, you know, they sent a team there. Uh, the Greenpeace ship was in New Zealand, and they blew up the ship. So that's terrorism. And one Greenpeace guy um, died in the attack. And at that time, Admiral Pierre Lacoste was the director of the DGSE. And he had to step down because, you know, it was revealed. And then, you know, the press was looking into this and they said, this is insane. Why is the French Secret Service blowing up, uh, you know, ships on the other side of the world? It's not possible. And this Admiral Pierre Lacoste, who, you know, he was in charge of the operation. And, you know, it's strange to call him a terrorist, but obviously he was the director of this terrorist operation. So in that case, he was a terrorist. He's not a terrorist in, in the sense that we think of him today, but um, he was linked to terrorism. And he then said that during the time when the stay behind NATO network operated uh, in, the, in the 60s and the 70s, some terrorist action against de Gaulle and his Algerian peace plan had been carried out uh, by groups that included, and that's a quote, a limited number of people from the French Stay Behind Network. And that is now very, very sensitive again, because um, that means that part of the uh, military and part of the secret services can turn against the government. Because de Gaulle was the French president at the time, and he wanted to send Algeria into independence, and the French military thought this is total humiliation. You know, they had already lost in Vietnam, and, and uh, they had lost, the, you know, partly against Hitler, and now they, you know, they had to let go the Algerian colony. They didn't want to, and so they turned with terrorism against de Gaulle, and that, according to Admiral Pierre Lacoste, included member of the French stay behind. So it's not limited to Italy, the problem. We also have in France uh, what you call rogue elements or maybe 
you know, people who, who, who just thought now uh, we have to fight our government. They have no clue. And it's intriguing. It's it's very interesting. Yes. And of course, talking about the rainbow warrior there and the, the, the blowing up of a ship, it reminds me immediately, of course, of Operation Northwoods. And I wanted to ask you about this morphing that we've been talking about of Gladio. Um, that seems to have coincided, roughly anyway, with the appointment of General Lyman Lemnitzer to the role of Supreme Allied Commander of NATO. This is in 1963. And of course, he had been the chairman of the US Joint Chiefs of Staff, which had put forward that Operation Northwood suggestion to President Kennedy, who thankfully rejected it. But I'm wondering if you could talk about that, because, uh, again, I don't suppose everybody will know about Northwoods and whether you think this has some bearing upon how Gladio, in this largest sense, we're calling it, actually morphed. Oh, yes, that is a very, very important and very interesting point. Because, I mean, for those who don't know Operation Northwoods, they should really Google it and, and, and get familiar with it. Because you don't understand secret warfare if you have never heard of Operation Northwoods. And, and it brings us back maybe to the beginning of our conversation where we talked about this war between Washington and, and Havana. So at that time, you know, we've said it before, the CIA wanted to overthrow uh, Fidel Castro with the so-called Bay of Pigs invasion in April. April 1961. This failed. And then Kennedy turned to the Pentagon and said, you know, the guys from the CIA um, messed it up. Um, Do you have a better idea how we could get rid of Fidel Castro? And then the Pentagon generals sat together and drew up a plan. And today, this is more than 50 years later, we have the original document. At the time, it was top secret, but it is now in our hands, in the hands of the historians. And Limden Lemnitzer was at the time the, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of staff. So for those who are not familiar with the military hierarchies, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is the highest officer okay, of the entire military. So he's the boss of the Pentagon, if you want. <laughs> the Pentagon obviously being the U.S. defense ministry. And above him, you, all, uh, you have the defense minister, but he's not an officer. He's a civilian. And you have the vice president and the president. That's the chain of command. And if you look at what this chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Lemnitzer, came up with, the idea that he came up with, then you're really baffled because you see that military officers at time think of, you know, manipulating terrorism. The document is dated March 13, 1962. And what the generals suggest is we could uh, remember the main incident could be arranged in several forms. And then I quote, we could blow up a U.S. ship in Guantanamo Bay and blame Cuba. Okay? Once again, the idea was Guantanamo Bay, obviously being uh, the U.S. base on Cuba, where you have now this torture uh, debate. Uh, but uh, at the time, they had American ships there, and they said, we ourselves could blow up a U.S. ship and then say Fidel did it. I mean, this is the thinking. And that is this called false flag strategy of tension terror. Another thing that he says, and I quote, we could develop a communist Cuban terror campaign in the Miami area, in other Florida cities, and even in Washington, exploding a few plastic bombs in carefully chosen spot, the arrest of Cuban agents, and the release of prepared documents. Mm-hmm. Substantiating Cuban involvement also would be helpful in projecting the idea of an irresponsible government. End of quote. So let me just explain what this means. It means the Pentagon generals planned to carry out terrorist attacks in Florida, in Washington, and in Miami, and then blame them on Fidel Castro. They don't write here whether people will be killed in these terrorist attacks or not, 
but it actually says we should do that and we should then arrest Cuban agents, you know, arrest some people and say, you know, you did it. And we should release prepared documents, documents that you prepare before and then plant them, which then show that Cuba did it. Although, obviously, in this case, you know, it would be all fake. It would be all a hoax. It would be all fraud. It would be all lies. And wasn't there another suggestion about downing a passenger aircraft and then sort of playing on people's sympathies by saying, oh, well, it was full of young people on their way to voluntary work or something? Yeah, yeah, true indeed. That, that's another page of the same document. It actually says we take a drone, so that's an unnamed aircraft, uh, and we bring it over Cuba and then we have it explode by interior uh, bomb um, uh, remote control so nobody, nobody would die. But we would say this is a normal uh, civilian aircraft, which was downed by Fidel Castro. And, you know, we had young American girls who actually wanted to fly to, I think, uh, Peru to help the poor um, uh, who are undernourished. And then you would have a very emotional story. And that is actually always the, the idea of false flag terrorism, of manipulated terrorism, to shock the public because yeah. the public would then not think, oh, gee, that's probably, you know, a drone and probably uh, brought to explosion by the Pentagon by remote control. They, they, no, they would never think that. They that, would think, that, of course, would be a conspiracy theory. Oh, yeah, that would <laughs> be exactly a conspiracy. And if historians research it, like me, they would be called conspiracy nuts. Yes, yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's but then when the actual document comes out, it's a little bit hard to say that, isn't it? That's very hard. Then the nuts are actually right. But then it's 50 years on and, you know, who cares? <laughs> and so this guy, Lemnitzer, actually is in charge of this group of guys who actually suggest this. And then he becomes the head of NATO. Yeah. <laughs> Around the same yeah. time at, w at which this set of organizations, oh, yes. these stay behind armies, start to morph into something much more hideous. Yes, it's, I mean, it's, you know, JFK at the time when he uh, heard of it, he stopped it, thankfully. I mean, we should be grateful to Kennedy that he didn't say, let's carry out Operation Northwoods. Northwoods was a plan which was not carried out. Kennedy stopped it and he had to do something with, with Lemnitz. So obviously, if you have the highest general of, in the Pentagon in Washington, who clearly is nuts, I mean, nuts in the sense of, he planned terrorism in the U.S. Then as president, and if you don't like it, you, you sort of think of the military industrial complex is much more dangerous than I thought. And then you need to get rid of him. But you can't get rid of him because he's on the top. You can't, you know, promote him somewhere. Uh, you need to give him a, a high post, but he has to be degraded. You know, he has to, to go a little bit down. And then he thought, you know, NATO commander in Europe is maybe a good idea. So he sent it, him to Europe. And, and obviously, then in 1963, Kennedy was killed. And still, you know, it is unclear who killed him. But we know today that he uh, tried to confront the uh, what Eisenhower called the military-industrial complex. Many people think it, it's a hoax, you know, it doesn't exist. And he was just joking in his farewell address. But I think Eisenhower was spot on. I mean, the military-industrial complex exists, and uh, Operation Northwoods is a document that the military-industrial complex actually plans fabricated terrorist attacks. So it is, uh, it's a kind of piece of circumstantial evidence. It's, it's very suggestive, but it doesn't actually amount to a proof, does it, of actual NATO, Pentagon, MI6, CIA involvement in the, the actual terror aspect of this. We can't go so far as to say that, can we? 
we have to keep it apart. You know, it, it actually means that they were planning to carry out terrorism in the U.S. and to then fight Cuba. And I have this, you know, from many conversations with other Europeans, people go like, oh, yeah, no, you know, they did nasty things when they overthrew um, uh, Mossadegh in 1953 in Iran, and they did nasty things in Chile when they overthrew Allende in 1973. But then, uh, you know, this is Latin America, and the other thing is the Persian Gulf, so who cares? These are all barbarians. The Americans would never do anything like that in Europe. And, and that's usually the sort of limit where people go, would the Americans, you know, that, that's, that's what it boils down to. But we have one general, it's uh, Giandelio Maletti, he's um, former head of the Italian counterintelligence unit, and he said in 2001 at the Piazza Fontana trial, he actually said, you know, um, American terrorism is a reality in Europe, and this, it's scary what he said. He said, the CIA, following the directives of its government, wanted to create an Italian nationalist capable of halting what it saw a slide to the left. And for this purpose, it may have made use of right-wing terrorism. That's his quote. And, you know, he's, he was a member of the Italian secret service, and he obviously was accused, you know, by Italians who said, why do you carry out terrorism against our mothers and against our children, against our... At the elderly in the country, are you insane? You know, you should you should be in prison. <laughs> and he said, "Come on, I I'm not the one to blame. I mean, I, I'm acting in in a global network." And 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 he said, "You know, at the time when Nixon was in charge, and Nixon, you know, wanted to fight communism, and he may have made use of right wing terrorism. That's how Maletti says it. And for us as historians, it's very hard to to find out what the truth is. I mean, in 1969, when this uh, terrorist attack uh, occurred." I wasn't even born. So um, I'm looking at the data and I'm trying to figure out who fooled whom. And this use of terrorism by whom and in, in whatever way it might have been didn't happen with all of these stay behind armies. I mean, you list Turkey, Spain, Greece and Germany, but you say some of the others just stayed as the original intention and they were quiet and they prepared for a possible Soviet invasion. That's true. Uh, for instance, in Norway, we didn't have any, any terrorist attacks. In Switzerland, we didn't have any terrorist attacks. And in Austria, we didn't have any terrorist attacks. But in Germany, obviously, we had this terrorist attack uh, in 1980 in Munich. And there's a huge debate right now going on. Um, the Generalbundesanwalt, who is actually the guy who can research uh, this terrorist attack, has now said that they reopened the case. So now in 2015, they're looking at the case again. Because um, there you have people who've carried out the attack. The main story being that it was just one crazy man and he was all alone and, you know, he, he blew himself up. So the case is closed. But familiar. It's <laughs> familiar. I've heard that before, haven't we? Or, 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 you know, two crazy guys who commit a crime in Paris and now are dead and can't be questioned. Yeah, but yeah. What, I, what, what I want to say about uh, Germany in 1980 is Gundolf Köhler is the guy who's, who's dead and, who, who you know, the official narrative says was the lonely man who carried out the attack. But the interesting thing in Germany is that you also had a secret army, a secret state behind army in Germany. But in 1980, when the attack occurred, obviously nobody knew about the existence of the secret army. But in 1981, a huge arms cache was discovered in Germany. And uh, some right-wing extremists in Germany have said, you know, we took our explosives 
from this arms cache, the explosive from Munich. And, and now that's the, the tricky thing. If you want to set up a secret army in Western Europe, you obviously have to equip it with, with, with explosives. I mean, you have to do that. In case Western Europe is occupied by the Soviet Union, uh, they have to be able to blow up bridges and so on. I mean, explosives is what you need if you, if you want to have a guerrilla. You can't give them just paper and, uh, and a pencil. No, no, no. To, to Presumably something. they have to be hidden somewhere so that they can get hold of them, but then there's no... But where's the control over that? That's it. That's exactly the point. I mean, if you have a democratic system, you don't want explosives and weapons and ammunition uncontrolled. You don't want that. But that was exactly necessary to have these secret networks. And in Germany, the, the intriguing thing is that you had people who were former Nazis who were recruited into this stay-behind network because um, NATO or the CIA said, gee, these guys hate the Russians. That's very good, you know. That's in- <laughs> incredible. Yes, I, I noticed that in the, uh, the, yeah. the Frankovich documentary, and I was astonished oh, that the guy was, was testifying that that is what had actually happened. Oh, many cases, you know, many cases. They said, we want somebody who's very solidly anti-communist. <laughs> and the former SS guy said, hey, gee, I apply, that's me. <laughs> and, you know, you... I mean, my students sometimes ask me, I don't understand it anymore. Weren't they fighting the fascists? And when, when they won against them, they put in them in front of, of the Nuremberg trials and they basically hanged them or said them, you now have to change. And I say, yeah, yeah, sure. You know, that's the official story. And, and that's also true. Unless they were useful. Yes, that's the bottom line. <laughs> Some were useful and those were not hanged and they were not tried. And the most interesting guy there, obviously, is Reinhard Gehlen. I mean, he was fighting under Hitler. Then at the end of the war, he, you know, he, he found out Hitler, Hitler was losing it. Okay. And, and he, he, he decided to switch sides. So, um, he made sure, uh, that, uh, that the Americans who found him knew that he was an important general. And they flew him, uh, to Washington, to Truman, who at the time was the president of the United States. And then this German Nazi general, Galen, says to Truman, um, hi, I, um, I could be useful uh, uh, to you because I've heard that we share an enemy, the, Moscow, the Soviet Union. And uh, then Truman said, yeah, yeah, maybe you could be useful because, you know, um, uh, Germany is one difficult territory and you obviously know it very well. And he said, oh, yes, I know it very well. And then uh, he said, okay, you can be the first boss of the German secret service. <laughs> and, and they made him the director of the Bundesnachrichtendienst. And it's insane. And when you read this as a student, you go like, how does that? They defeat Hitler first and then they take a Nazi and make him the director of the secret service in Germany. How does it add up? And it's actually only adding up in exactly that way that you said. Things that are useful, things that are strategically useful are still being done. It's funny in a way. I mean, it's horrendous, but it's also funny in a way. It reminds me immediately of those films that say a James Bond film, you know, where somebody says, no, 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 don't don't kill them. They might be useful to us. And it it turns out to be true. (laughs) Yes. I mean, that's, you know, as a kid, I watched James Bond. I I, I thought it was wonderful, fascinating, everything. I mean, I have this fascination for special forces and secret services. Yeah. But then you watch it and, and, and you know, then, then you switch to BBC News. <laughs> and, and then you think, oh, now there's a completely different world. Whereas, in fact, everything that you have in James Bond 
is taken from reality. It's just not your actual analysis what's actually going on. That's the one thing. And the second thing, which is not true, is it's not always NATO, which is the good guy. And obviously, we like to have this narrative of us being the good guys and the Soviets or the Muslims being the bad guys. But sometimes it's exactly the other way around. And then we don't want to hear it. And so a lot of what you've just said, it seems to be related to Operation Paperclip. Do you think it's basically the same kind of policy going on? I don't know much about it, I'm afraid. I couldn't okay. comment on that. Sure. Um, the last thing that I want to ask you about this historic situation, really, is the P2 Lodge, this strange organization, and this guy called Jaili. It seems to be one of the most intriguing aspects of it, because it gives a, a window into the kind of control mechanisms that uh, seem to have been in place at the time. So could you tell us something about this Propaganda Due Lodge and this guy called Lizio Jaili? Yeah, sure. That brings us back to Italian politics once more. And the funny thing with the Propaganda Due was that this was a network of people who belonged to the Italian parliament, to the uh, Italian press, to the banks, to the industry, and they gathered together. But behind, you know, behind the official curtain, it was like a parallel government. And Lizio Gelli was the head of this uh, secret network. And they controlled Italian politics in the sense that they wanted to make sure that the communists don't come to power. So they would pressure somebody who's in the press and say, you're not going to be promoted or you're going to be fired if you report this or that about secret mm. networks when somebody uncovered somebody. They linked up also with criminals or the mafia to solve things. And if you look at the propaganda due, you have to say, even Berlusconi was part of it, you know, propaganda due. <laughs> uh, then you go like, Madness. What's all that? I mean, this is not how political science textbooks explain democracy, because there they say, you know, there's the people, the people are in power. They vote, and then you have some parliamentarians who represent the people. And these, you know, they, they pay good attention to what the executive does, and the executive does a few things, but only according to the laws that the parliamentarians wrote. And if anything goes wrong, we still have the press, and the press would certainly inform the people that something went wrong. And then, and I say, oh, yes, dream on. That's just the textbook. If you look at history, like real history, you very often have abuse of power by just a very small minority who keep everybody else in the illusion that they have a free press and that they have a total control of the power structure, whereas, in fact, it still is an oligarchy. Oligoi is the Greek word for just a few. And I think that's still true today. We have just a few who control the uh, international power game. And the many, I mean, you and I and the listeners, we belong to the many, um, we can try to look behind, you know, the curtain every now and again. But still, I think the few call the shots. So presumably this organization, which I understand actually was a Masonic lodge. I'm not sure how that's related to the rest. Yeah, was, I'm not sure how that's related yeah, to the rest a, of, uh, of Masonry. But nevertheless, it was, wasn't yeah. it? And presumably it's also like the mafia in some sense, and, and manipulating people and blackmailing yeah. and all these kinds of things. Uh, pres- oh, very corrupt. Yeah. Uh, but you see, you say in your book that it's, this is your quote, you say it's a US-funded anti-communist parallel government, and you say that it's working closely with US-funded anti-communist parallel army Gladio. Yeah. So in both of those clauses there, you've said this is US-funded. I mean, what evidence do we have of that? 
Um, we do know that the propaganda due was U.S. funded, and we do know that Operation Gladio received U.S. funding. A uh, funny thing is that uh, sometimes, you know, you have in the Italian documents, you have a debate. Um, the British offered training uh, of the Secret Service soldiers, you know, um, the guerrilla training, uh, the James Bond sort of stuff, if you want special operations training. But the British said, we uh, also uh, want you to buy the arms and the ammunition and everything for the secret army from us. And then the Italian, you know, they're always smart and try to profit from all sides. They uh, argue, we should take uh, the arms from the Americans because they give the arms for free. But we should take the training from the British because the quality is better. And, <laughs> you know, we have all sorts of documents which substantiate that obviously America, uh, in the sense of Washington, as well as uh, Great Britain, a sense of London, wanted to keep Italy during the whole Cold War solidly within the NATO camp, which means they didn't want um, the Italian Communist Party, which was very strong and, and controlled uh, a good part of Italian parliament. They didn't want that the Italian communists become members of the government. And in fact, when Aldo Moro, the Italian prime minister, wanted to bring the Italian communists into the government, he, he was assassinated. So this idea of Europe was a messy place until 1945, uh, we were killing each other. And ever since, uh, it has been peaceful and transparent. It's not exactly true. Um, we've had a lot of terrorism in Western Europe during the Cold War. We have politicians assassinated. We've had right-wing dictatorships in Spain and Portugal. We had a military coup d'etat in Greece. We had three military coup d'etat in Turkey. We had terrorist attacks in, in Germany. We had terrorist attacks in Italy and in France. And we had terrorist attacks in Belgium. And um, so it's, it's a bit superficial uh, to just see this European Union as a totally peaceful territory uh, from 45 onwards. Yes, yes. And going back to the Propaganda Due Lodge, this guy, Lizio Gelli, he's a very interesting character because, I mean, he seems to have been well respected by the establishment anyway in the US. You have a number of quotes that seem to indicate that. Yeah. And yet he's also, we had a Nazi past very definitely yeah he's one he's like galen you know he was useful uh, if you think of germany and italy um they they had hitler and they had mussolini and hitler and mussolini were not alone they had you know thousands and millions of people who stood behind them so obviously after 1945 you had people who still were convinced that mussolini and hitler were right and these mm -hmm. people when they were considered useful were actually, you know, invited uh, to the U.S., to England, to actually then fight against uh, this, yeah. the Soviets or the communists in, in Italy and, and in Germany and, and, and in other countries. It, and they were used. I mean, Lizio Gelli was invited by President Reagan and other presidents. And, uh, you know, he was, he was playing on, on the very high level. And, and nobody went and said, but your history shows that you, you, you're actually linked, directly linked to fascism. Yeah. So I mean, you have a few paragraphs where these two amazing facts are linked. The fact that he apparently he fought for Franco in the Spanish Civil War. He actually yes. became a sergeant major in the SS under Hermann Goering. Yep. Um, and then yep. the other fact is that you have evidence to suggest that um, General Haig and Henry Kissinger had authorized this guy uh, in 1969 to recruit 400 high-ranking Italian and 
NATO officers into this lodge, this, this P2 lodge. Yes. I mean, yeah. if you still are in this mindset that you think Washington would never cooperate with fascists, then obviously, you know, you can't wrap your mind around this. But once you leave this belief behind you and say, okay, you know, that's the story. Basically, um, the, the, the geostrategic interests are much stronger. And if necessary, both the American and the British Secret Service cooperated with fascists after 1945 in Germany, in Italy, and in other countries uh, when the new enemy w- was communism. And, and, and that's basically the data that, ha- that I have from my research into NATO secret armies. But you're absolutely right. I mean, if today you go to, to NATO and say, um, I have a few questions. First question, did you ever cooperate with fascists? Second question, were you linked to terrorism? And third question, why did you set up secret armies without telling the population? The NATO spokesman would say, that's all conspiracy theories. I mean, we're, we're not answering yeah. these things. You know, NATO is not a transparent uh, organization. And you mentioned Turkey earlier on, and this is really fascinating because, of course, Sybil Edmonds maintains that Turkey was always a very important aspect of this. Well, I think she maintains that it's perhaps the most important center for gladio-like operations. And she characterizes the Turkish paramilitary as being linked with the Turkish mafia, heavily involved in drug smuggling, and that it received training from NATO, and that it was carrying out false flag attacks. Um, Do you agree with that? Do you think Turkey was perhaps more important even than the Italian gladio scene? Um, Yeah, I think uh, Sibel Edmonds, I've never met her, I have to admit, but um, I've seen some of her YouTube videos, and I think she's uh, doing very good research in in, in that area. I mean, the point really is that, you know, every researcher is limited by the language boundaries, and she obviously speaks Turkish, so she's in a much better position to judge the situation in Turkey. And what we do know is that uh, in Turkey you had three military coup d'etat. I mean, that is a fact. And um, the, the secret armies seemed to be involved in these in these coup d'etat, and and uh, that was during the Cold War. But uh, when the Cold War was over, still you had a fight in Turkey going on. Obviously, a war within the country against the Kurds. You have groups from the Grey Wolves and from other groups of the the extreme right in in Turkey, which actively were engaged in in this war against part of the Turkish population. So we had many people killed there. And so I think, yes, Turkey is a country uh, where you have to look very, very specifically at what was the secret army of NATO doing in Turkey. Were they involved in the coup d'etat? Because in Turkey, you always have this balance that on the one hand, Turkey is a NATO country. But on the other hand, it's a Muslim country. I mean, you know, people forget it very often, but that's the situation. So Turkey is on this border between Europe and the Middle East and Asia. It has always been, Turkey, historically, in two worlds. And and that is something which shows up in, in, in this NATO structure as well, because NATO obviously wanted to have a very strong Turkish military. And this military at times... Uh, was engaged in secret operation that Sibel Edmund correctly criticized because, you know, some of it, when, when you look at the Susurluk incident, which was an incident where you had members of the Turkish stay behind and members of the drug cartel, uh, which were driving in the same car, which, which went into an accident. And that's why, you know, the press went and said, you know, there's a scandal we, the Turkish military is out of control and, and, and you have a lot of debate in Turkey about this so-called deep state, which means uh, uncontrolled military-industrial complex in Turkey. 
they call it Ergenekon and other names um, that stand for it. And what they mean is that they try to find out whether the military in Turkey has been uh, linked to, to false flag terrorism. So, yes, a whole new chapter, Turkey, and certainly an important one. And of course, as you say, it's a whole new chapter. She opens the chapter with the heading Gladio B, which I understand to be a kind of shift from false flag kind of activities with respect to left wing groups in uh, Western Europe towards uh, the Mujahideen and Al Qaeda and uh, manipulating those kinds of groups. Um, Do you think that's a reasonable hypothesis? It is a reasonable hypothesis because uh, during the Cold War, as you call, Gladio um, had the task to fight communism. And with the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, this topic really is, you know, is history. We're not, nobody's fighting communism today. I mean, you know, China is a communist country, but it has adapted uh, magnificently to capitalism at the same time. Yes. You know, no, nobody cares too much about North Korea. And, and as you see, Cuba is also in a, in, a, in a transition. So communism is not an issue today. But we do have today, uh, what is an issue to my mind is um, that we have resource wars, that we have wars for oil and gas. And and the biggest resources of oil and gas are obviously in Muslim countries. I mean, uh, if you look at Saudi Arabia, it's a Muslim country, big resource resources there, oil. If you look at the Iraq, which was attacked in 2003, by the way, uh, false pretexts, these are ABC weapons didn't exist, so war lies. Why, why, why was the attack carried out? You know, because of the oil, to my mind. And, and, and in order to actually discredit the Muslim countries and in, in order to justify the bombing of Muslim countries, it could well be that Sibel Edmonds is is right that now what we have is actually false flag Muslim terrorism in the sense that Western secret services support certain militant Muslims uh, to carry out their attacks because it helps. It helps to shock Europeans and Americans into this fear of Muslims. So what I mean is if we take the Northwood documents, which we have, and if we take the Gladio history, which we have, and, and and we think onwards on, on, on our present day, then it's not, you know, it's not something that I can prove, but it's something that I think is important to research. Are we now in an age where Muslim terrorists are being supported by Western secret services and where once again governments are actually complicit, and that's then state crimes, are actually complicit in terrorist attacks in the sense that they let them happen or that they make them happen or that they support the research here and there so that in the end the Muslims are framed like Operation Northwoods wanted to frame the communists in order to justify NATO bombing of Muslim countries. Yeah, maybe that's the situation we're in. I don't know. So this would be considering the strategy of tension as we've been discussing as going hand in hand with this doctrine of the responsibility to protect. So you you go in possibly and you cause chaos through manipulating various groups, then you see that there's a humanitarian crisis because of this, and then that justifies your going in to protect the people who are damaged by this situation that you have actually brought about. Yes, that's one way of doing it. Or the other way of doing it is obviously you you have a group of demonstrators on a public square and then you just fire on them and kill them and say, you know, the government did it and then you can you can topple the government. I mean, that was done in Ukraine in, in on February 21, 2014. That's something we all witnessed. That's not even 12 months ago. And now the question is obviously, who did the firing? Who were the snipers? And today we know those people who research uh, secret warfare – 
that these snipers on the Maidan in Kiev, they killed both demonstrators and policemen. So that's strange, you know. Uh, mm. Obviously, if, if you come from this group of, of research that I do, you, you wonder, I mean, um, how, why did the acting president shoot his own policemen? And I don't believe it, really. I mean, usually they don't do that. And what you then see is that on that day, the government of Yanukovych fell, and the new government of Poroshenko came into place. And the big change here is that Yanukovych was the guy of Moscow. Okay, He was a Russian-friendly dictator or oligarch. And now Poroshenko is the guy of Washington. He's a, he's a Washington-friendly dictator or oligarch. And, you know, these things are not things of the past. They are things that concern us today because secret warfare is not something that stopped. I very much think uh, that secret warfare is something that we need to take into account if we look at international politics. And you did mention in passing the Charlie Hebdo attack. And uh, I just wanted to ask you about whether you think this could be reasonably interpreted as a gladio-like operation. I mean, Paul Craig Roberts, although he doesn't, he's not prepared to say that it was, he certainly has grave suspicions that it might well have been. What's your reaction to it? Um, my reaction is that I have a lot of doubts because the official story is they have two guys. Um, you know, the terrorist attack here, again, is in two parts. One is on, on the Charlie Hebdo and the other one is on this Jewish supermarket. And I'm not talking about the Jewish supermarket. It makes it all more confusing. It's better sure. just stick to the Charlie Hebdo attack. And in this case, you have two guys which are masked. You can't see who they are. And they go, the story goes, to Charlie Hebdo, kill 12 people and then take their car and drive away. Okay, it's a simple story so far. But then they stop and leave that car and change to another car. So they uh, they change their car. I mean, you can do that if you're a terrorist, obviously. But then, and that's how the Swiss press reports it, one of the killers lost his identity card in the car. I'm, I'm, <laughs> yes. I'm just going, that's a really stupid thing to do. I mean, what a terrible mistake. Because after he lost his card, that is Said Kuchawi. So one of the Kuchawi brothers, I mean, you know, obviously you have one identity card and they immediately go, oh, if I have one card, I know two killers. That's also a bit flimsy. But then let, let's say, okay, they said that probably the brothers. His picture was all over the news within 24 hours. And obviously it, it reinforced this feeling of many, many people here in Switzerland, also in the UK, in the US, in France, that the Muslims are bad people. Okay, we have really to say it, you know, just this picture and, and, and the news that somebody was killed. And even if you don't know the details, it just frames the Muslims as bad people. And they're not, you know, the Christians are not bad people and Mm. the Jews are not bad people and the Hindus are not and the atheists are not. And we really have to say that in every group you have criminals in every in every religious group. But right now with this terrorist attack in Paris, people again have this suspicion or this feeling without knowing that the Muslims are really terrorists. And that is based on this identity card. And then you go like, wow, they killed 12 people, and that's insane. But when you talk about the year 2011, when NATO bombed Libya and killed 30,000 people, most of them were Muslims, then, you know, people in Europe go like, oh, yeah, that's just 30,000. That's not a big deal. Is there an ice cream van? (laughs) That's another another call coming in. (laughs) I hope it's not calling again. Yes, this business about the ID 
very difficult to take seriously at all. I mean, I immediately thought of that phrase that I actually heard in the film Minority Report, where there's an orgy of evidence with all the photographs yeah. spread over the bed. And I thought, well, there we go. That seems like a, an orgy of evidence there. And also, of course, I was reminded of that passport that miraculously escaped from the uh, Twin Towers. Yeah, yeah. That's, I mean, yeah. these these are difficult topics for, for any researcher to cover. For instance, I mean, the 9-11 attack is now, it's 13 years ago, almost 14 years ago. And, you know, you would expect historians by this time to, to sort of have uh, found a consensus and, you know, found the truth, what really happened. But I have to tell you, I mean, this terrorist attack of 9-11, which actually started this whole war on terror, so-called war on terror, which started also this period that we're now in where, where the Muslims are the bad guys and, you know, they're the terrorists or the dictators and then they have weapons of mass destruction and they're out to kill us all. So, you know, this very angry and fearful period we're unfortunately in. This obviously means that um, people like I, who specialize in secret warfare, we must look at 9-11. And I obviously did this. And what I found is that the collapse of this third tower, World Trade Center 7, is absolutely mysterious because people remember 9-11 as a moment when two airplanes crush into high buildings in New York. That, that's, you know, what everybody remembers. I mean, I have many friends who say they even remember where they were on that day. I mean, that's very, very rare in history that, you know, people remember where they were. Sure. Sure. Well, I, I often consider it to be, historically speaking, the beginning of the 21st century. Yes. And I oh, often yes. consider it to be a kind of deep state coup and the beginning of all these troubles, you know, a, a step change into this new era that we're in. Do you see it as a deep state coup? It might well be. It might well be. that The thing is, I'm not sure what really happened. What I see is, and I can just give you my experience, I know that this picture of just two planes hitting two buildings and these two buildings going down, this picture is incomplete for all those who've never bothered to, to read into 9-11 and, and, and understand, you know, that some people say I'm fed up with it and I don't want to hear any bit about it. But they should take into account that three buildings collapsed on that day in New York. Three skyscrapers went down, but we only had two planes in New York. So it's two planes and three buildings. And that, you know... How can two planes topple three buildings? And then you, you realize, okay, this World Trade Center 7 was never hit by a plane. And then you start to wonder, but why did it collapse? And then we have people coming forward from the National Institutes for Standards and Technology in the U.S. who say, well, the fire brought the building down. And then I went here at ETH, which is a Swiss university where I used to work. I went to people who are doing building construction all the time. And I said, do you believe that World Trade Center 7 was brought down by fires? And then they said, well, let's look at the evidence. And you have 81 steel columns, really solid columns. And then the, the American report, um, the, the NIST report says column 79 was destabilized by fire. And, you know, we're sitting at, at ETH in Zurich and these these experts for, for building safety look at it and they say, that's complete nonsense. Yeah, we've had Kevin Ryan on this program and also oh. Tony Zambotti and they've both pointed out this technically that's just not feasible. And in fact, Tony Stop. Zambotti was, was pointing to things that actually missed out of the NIST reports. That's it. And, you know, that brings us historians. I mean, I'm always trying to emphasize we historians, we work for the public. OK, we work in your your interest and 
We try to find out what happened on 9-11. And obviously, you have first Bush and Cheney coming forward, giving their version of events. But they're politicians and they lie a lot. So don't trust them. And then you have the 9-11 Commission report, which came out in 2004, 600 pages. But their World Trade Center 7 is not even mentioned. So, okay, you can't use that either. And then you have to go to the building safety structure and you have to talk to architects and engineers. And there you find out that something is really wrong. And when you find out that something is really wrong about 9-11, and I have this feeling, you know, something seems to be really wrong, then you can't say exactly what sort of historical period we're in. But it seems to be that false flag terrorism and manipulation of populations through fear is really a very, very big topic that peace researchers must dig into. Yes, indeed. And in fact, people do seem to becoming more aware of this term false flag because i can't remember what it was a year ago i think it was around the time of the boston bombings actually a google analysis was done and it was found that people were searching for that term more than they ever had done before and in some ways i looked upon that as being a quite a positive thing that people seem to be becoming aware that this is going on oh true indeed you need uh, to have the language to actually into new spaces. I mean, that's something that has always been said. If you, if you don't have the language to grasp a phenomenon, you, you'll never understand it. And, and if you only have the term terrorism, that will not bring you very far. You need the term false flag terrorism, you know, that sometimes somebody drops a flag, which is a wrong flag to actually deceive anybody. And you need the term strategy of tension, which actually means that the victims of terrorism are not only those who are killed, but those who observe and are in shock and uh, they have tension inside of them. And that is actually the aim of the terrorist attack because, you know, with, with the dead, you can't do much with the dead, but with those who observe the terror and who are in shock, they are then more willing to sacrifice their civil yes. liberties. Yes, it's, it's not just a combat operation. It's a psychological operation as well, it's, isn't it? It's totally a psychological operation because on that, you can then say, we need more money for defense and we, we need to fight a war in Syria, or we need to bomb um, Libya, or we need to bomb Iraq. And, you know, people then have a feeling of, yeah, maybe that's a good idea because there's evil people living there. And and this is war propaganda and has always been uh, like that, that you need to enter the mind of, of the home front. You know, it's called the home front. <laughs> Strange term, isn't it? But that's actually the taxpayers who who decide whether they want to leave NATO or would they want to stay in NATO or would they want to, to see NATO enlarge or would they... Uh all these questions yeah, or an audit of NATO, if that were even Good possible idea, yeah. Why not? <laughs> so i mean we've been talking about so many dark things here do you see hope in this growth of public awareness about issues like this yes yes very much so i'm glad you bring this up because mm. you know when i teach my students i always tell them you know this is a very fascinating subject secret warfare but um, if we look at the spiral of violence, uh, then it's only 1% of the world population which is actively participating in torture, which is participating in terrorist attacks, which is bombing other countries, beheading people, etc. Because 1% of 7 million, that's 70 million. And 70 million is, is all it takes. You know, there's not many more than that. All the people who fight in Ukraine, the Islamic State, if you want, the terrorists in Paris, the terrorists in New York, everything – it's just 70 million. But this 1%, they really keep us going and running around. I mean, but I want to stress that my personal belief is 
that human beings are wonderful beings. They're not out there to kill you. They're not out there to behead you or blow you up. Not at all. Not at all. Check among your friends. Who, who's raped somebody? Who's, who's shot somebody in the head? Who would find satisfaction in bombing somebody and, and, or torturing somebody? And when you check your friend's network or, or your family network, you will find nobody or, you know, maybe very, very far away people. And that is representative of the 99%. The 99%, they want to listen to music and, and earn some money and fall in love and lay on a beach. And <laughs> human beings are friendly. We're a bit lazy. That's true. We, we like to relax and that's okay. But then they shock us with all these terrorist attacks. And, and that's it, isn't it? It's this element of shock. It's the, the use of this information that is really key to this, isn't it? So if people do become more and more aware that, okay, these events are going on, but crucially that is being manipulated by the media if we can become aware that that process is going on and say well just say to ourselves no i'm i'm not going to believe that this characterizes the whole of the world i'm being manipulated here then presumably the power of this could actually disappear yeah because it's it's a fight for your mind which is going on it's a fight for your heart you know and 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 once it's possible to shock people into hate and into fear you can ask them for, you know, give me 5% of the, of the GDP for, for defense. And then people go, no, I, I need some money for my kids who go to school and I want, want better schools. And then people go, no, oh, you can't have better schools because the terrorists are out there and they're going to kill you. And then you go, I don't believe you. No, I don't want to give this money to the military industrial complex who's bombed Afghanistan for 14 years. And what good have they done in Afghanistan? I mean, show me your record. I mean, what good have you done in Libya? I mean, it's a holy mess. And if you look at Iraq, another mess. So uh, I think people are waking up and uh, they're using their own head. I mean, the problem is that the mainstream media is not very good at giving a critical look at NATO and, and manipulated terrorism. It's quite scary. They, they usually just offer a very superficial narrative. Well, thank heavens that we do, in fact, have the alternative media. And I'm ever so glad that you've been able to come on today and talk on just this very small corner of the alternative media, Dr. Gann. So it's been great to have you on. I've been looking forward to this interview, actually, for quite some time, because unfortunately, we've had to postpone it, haven't we, a number of times for one reason or yes, another. Yes, no, no, sorry. It's been so busy. That, but now we took the time and we, we, I think we went into great many details. And I hope, I hope your listeners, uh, you know, profited from it and maybe read on and, and, and just keep an open and peaceful mind and don't think that the world is a is an evil place it's not yes yes it's been wonderful and you've given us masses of information and i do hope as you, as you say that people will follow up on it so thank you very much indeed for agreeing to spend all this of your valuable time with us today thank you julian charles good luck to you thank you ciao julian bye-bye 